The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, quit shaking your jingle bells and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 296, featuring the open source panel at DevTeach in Vancouver, recorded live Wednesday, November 7, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was just told by an open source company that tech support was closed on account of his mom grounded him. Carl Franklin. Hey, 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 it's Carl and Richard. We're back. It's Thursday. A lovely week here. It's snowing in Connecticut. How are you, Richard? Wintertime is upon us, man, and I'm finally finished traveling. Yeah, I'm thinking Bermuda might be yeah. uh, in order here before the winter's out. <laughs> Short hop to Bermuda, do a little rum. I don't know. You so, know, I, I talk about alcohol a lot, but I really don't drink that much. It's true. But it would be nice to go to Bermuda and somebody hand you a pina colada and just go to sleep on the beach. There you go. Wake up like a lobster. Yeah, That's what I'm thinking about this holiday season. Thank you very much. So, on to Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got for me? You know, Richard, uh, when I go looking for classes and stuff, usually I'm thinking, let me talk about something important, something that everybody can grok immediately or maybe just not grok, but... Something that's really like, oh, wow, that's good. I could use that. Change their lives. Change their lives. Absolutely. Today's class is completely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking system.data-misaligned exception. What? Some microprocessors, such as 64-bit processors, can oh. issue hardware exceptions when data is read or written to a misaligned address 
That is, when an address is not a multiple of the size of the data being accessed. Right. Data misaligned... See, I knew you would love this. Yes. Data misaligned exception is typically thrown when 16-bit, 32-bit, or 64-bit data is read from or written to an address that is not a multiple of 2, 4, or 8 bytes. Right. Now... The data misaligned exception exposes the underlying hardware exception. I memorized this, by the way. Aren't you proud of me? You're so smart. Which uh, I'm lying. I'm reading it. (laughs) Which allows you to respond in an appropriate manner. So it exposes the underlying hardware exception, which allows you to respond in an appropriate manner. For example, a routine in your application attempts to copy a sequence of bytes from one location to another in in 64-bit units. So basically assigning a long from one to another. However, the right operation starts at a misaligned address, which causes the common language runtime to throw a data misaligned exception. Your routine responds to the exception by copying the data one byte at a time. Now I ask you, Richard, should we be having error handling around assigning a long to a long? Well, yeah, in this particular scenario. But come on. I mean, who's going to do that? Why, well, why does this happen? Educate me. Well, you know, it's funny because I I actually, funny you would say that, generally where I've run into issues like this, and it hasn't been like the 32-bit, 64-bit thing, it's back in like the 816 and the 1632 days, yeah, where we were really scrounging memory, and so we were writing things as individual bytes and stuff, and just doing dumb stuff in the efforts to just conserve memory. We had... 2k pages to play with in one scenario and Hmm. and so every byte counted and getting it back to a sort of normal state was important really what you're looking at here is protection that you should not normally ever be grabbing a four chunk byte that isn't in alignment but i mean how would you know i mean you basically says that uh i mean if can you get this by assigning a value from one long to another No. no no way all right, so you really have to be doing some low-level stuff. You're doing something dumb, and it's your own darn fault. So it's pro- you're probably not using managed code, then. Probably. I mean, any time I've ever done anything like this, I wasn't managed code. All right. That makes me happy. So you're, maybe you're in C-sharp, uh, what, is, what do they call that, uh, you know, risky mode? What do they yeah. call it? <laughs> Unmanaged mode? No, well, yeah, I guess, but there's, they have a name for it. Death-defying mode? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you get the idea. I, I agree with you that it would be you're doing something in the unmanaged space. You're reading some binary file or okay. or something like that where it's not just a stream of bytes. It's segmented in some way, and you're missing on the segmentation. Well, you heard it, folks. Move along. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> if I don't get an email on this, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> All right, Richard. Got an email for me? I do indeed. This is a quick one, and it's actually from a little while ago. I've been saving it for the right occasion. Aha. And it's from June, from Tyler Rennell. He says, hey, Carl, since Richard doesn't read email anymore. Oh, smackdown. I read email in June. It's just that, you know, you didn't a couple shows ago. Right. He's poking at me. (laughs) Yeah. I bike to and from work each day an hour and a half. Wow. And for the last year or so, I've been searching for the perfect developer's podcast for the road. Huh. TechNet was too dry and the rest were too dumb. Wow. I settled on Hansel Minutes and .NET Ross because they were the best compromise of mixing schmooze with education. Hey. But until just recently, they seemed a bit more schmooze than anything. Uh Uh-oh. 
I'm thinking back to June. Let's see if that's really true. Your recent episodes, however, have been great. What with all the rivalry panels, head-to-head interviews, and the more you know the framework, or whatever you're calling it, <laughs> I'm learning invaluable development skills and staying awake at the same time. All right. I'd like to see more like the ORM Smackdown, where methods and techniques are bantered. After a session like that, I can walk into work, slam my fist on the table, and say there's going to be some changes around here. You know, I love these emails because it really shows that people appreciate the good stuff. And, you know, we don't always get good stuff. It's kind of like, you know, you go out to dinner at McDonald's every day, and your parents take you to Denny's every, you know, once a week. And then then you go to, like, a five-star restaurant, and you have you know, cuisine. Right. And then you're pissed because you haven't had cuisine every day. <laughs> well, I don't really want to compare us to Denny's. I know we try to get the oh, best no, show Oh, no, no, we're not time. Denny's. We're, we're cuisine, man. Well, not always. <laughs> sometimes we're Denny's. Yeah, some, sometimes. But it uh, ties in nicely to today's show. Because today, that ORM Smackdown, that was Allende and Ted Neward. That may have been the best DNR we ever did. I was so much fun. And to in the audience, it was hysterical. Well, the thing is, I mean, you know, it's dry, really. This is a dry subject. Oh, How sure. do you make it exciting? Throw a little reality TV in there. And a large <laughs> Israeli. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. little drama never hurts. But it ties into this week's show because that was done at DevTeach. And uh, today's show is also from DevTeach Vancouver. Yep. And it's another panel, although somewhat a different panel with a different style. Yep. But before we roll that recording, I just want to mention that uh, Sahil Malik has recorded with me a DNR-TV-style training session, nine-plus hours on SharePoint 2007. Everything you need to know to get yourself off the ground comes with source code. It's all done with Camtasia, 1280 by 1024. It's all well-produced, just like all the rest of our shows, and uh, it's 695. So if you're interested in that DVD training... On SharePoint 2007, go to www.franklins.net and check it out. Also, if you're thinking about a change in careers or just a change of pace, maybe you're going to want to go work in Manhattan in the Big Apple for a year just to test the waters and see how it's going. Well, if you qualify, the folks at Infusion will send you to New York and they'll put you up in an apartment rent-free for a year working in, with a bunch of exciting people in the financial district. So... Uh, if you're interested in that offer, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. And by the way, shrinkster.com is back up again, in case you haven't heard. And thank you very much for that, Mr. Franklin. You're welcome. And uh, now let's uh, roll the recording of the panel discussion that we recorded at DevTeach in Vancouver last week. Hey, Vancouver! Welcome to All right. Hey, Richard, we're here with a throng of people at DevTeach in Vancouver. You're in my town. I'm in your town. And what a great town it is. The weather has been wonderful. (laughs) Since, yes. Little little snow, little rain. Little snow, little rain, a lot of cold. But, you know, I'm from Connecticut, so I'm sort of used to that. We are here uh, at DevTeach in Vancouver, as I said, with a panel of experts to talk about open source. And uh, why don't I introduce the two on my half, and you introduce the two on your half, starting with my, right at my right, Mr. Rod Paddock. And to his right, Mr. Sean Walker of .NET Nuke. 
Now it's my left because I'm standing on the other side of stage. Sarah Ford, and you're with the Coplex team, right? Right. Sarah Ford. And beside him, one of the famous folks in Vancouver, Rob Cartier. So this is just a general panel on uh, open source uh, as a as a practice and as a development method. Uh, I'm going to kick it off just by listing some of the more successful uh, open source projects that .NET developers might be and we familiar will be with. Sorry, we will be taking questions from the audience. I would ask you to just come right up here. And then I'll hand you the mic, and we'll take questions. Let's get rolling. Well, uh, we couldn't start this list without mentioning .NET Nuke, of course. .NET Nuke. Paint.net, which is... Uh, Rick Rooster. Great product. Giving Photoshop a run for its money. Uh, Sharp Dev, Sharp Builder, what is the... What is it called? I think it's Sharp Builder, right? Sharp Builder? Yeah. Sharp, Sharp Developer. developer. Sharp Developer, that's right. Sharp Developer. Great open source development platform. Uh, Power Toys, Microsoft, MS uh, yeah. Microsoft Power Toys. All kinds of Power Toys, too. The Ajax Control Toolkit, also from Microsoft. Yeah. Then we're talking all the N things, like NUnit, NANT, NHibernate, all of those N products. And... And also, I heard today that some pieces of FoxPro are now open source. Yeah! <laughs> John Bristow's all pieces of FoxPro are now. Well, that's not what I understand. I understand that there are some some portions that are shared with SQL Server, and therefore they're not. But, oh, okay. Which leads me into my first question, which is, is there such a thing as a mixed-mode kind of open source project where some... Parts of it are binaries only that need to be licensed as is, and some parts are open source. Any one of you want to tackle that one? Has, have, has anyone ever seen that? Sarah, have you ever seen anything like that on CodePlex? Well, I was going to answer, absolutely. Because uh, one of our, um, just a little bit of background before, uh, for me, I drove the uh, Power Toys for Visual Studio as open source projects on CodePlex. I've been in Visual Studio for six years up until last month, which I uh, joined the CodePlex team. So one of our power toys, or actually a couple of them, actually used that mixed model. And what we did it, used it for was, uh, especially for uh, extensibility, we realized that we wanted to keep the core closed for supportability, and but to have the external layer, to have that open for people to be able to uh, contribute more to to that layer. So we have seen that. Oh, very an interesting point that you can't. You can't really support an open source product as, say, Microsoft. PSS isn't going to handle an open exactly. source product, but if you have some parts that are closed, then those can be supported and they're stable and you know, not being changed. What are, what are the criteria, your, your criteria, and I'm interested in all of your actual uh, answers for this. What, what, are, what are the criteria for something that makes it a, a project a good candidate for open source development? I guess from my perspective, from .NET Nuke's perspective, um, in order for a project to be considered a, a good candidate for open source, there has to be, it has to solve a large enough problem, I believe. So it has to be able to attract enough community members to it to grow, you know, a large ecosystem around it. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just one developer with perhaps a couple users, and that doesn't have really enough viability long term to be a real serious open source project. 
does competition have anything to do with it? I mean, if there's commercial competition and not a lot of, as you say, uh, developers that are willing to work on it, that can also be a problem, I suppose? Well, I mean, I, I think that when it comes to open source, as much as the product's important, the community aspect of it is just as important. So if there is no mm. large community around it, then... You don't have a product. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we found that uh, we got the most uh, contribu contributions to the Power Toys projects that were specific to, uh, it was a mutual need. For example, uh, we had a forums moderator toolkit for the Microsoft forums. And so our uh, moderators out in the community, they, they wanted a way to uh, view what questions had not been answered yet or who's been answering what. So we, we seen like where there was a mutual need to get more work done. We saw a great number of uh, contributions. So more pain means more contribution. Sean, if I remember correctly, finally correct me if I'm wrong, you had to make a conscious decision to decide to go open source or no at some point. Um, yeah, that's somewhat true, I guess. But um, I was developing an application, proprietary application on my own, and then realized sort of after a year of doing that that, um, you know, I didn't have the financial capability behind me or the marketing. You know, I wasn't really going to make a go of it as a standard proprietary company. And then at that point, I realized that there was a lot of good value in what I created and that I'd be best sharing that with the greater community. Right. And so it wasn't a, I mean, going open source wasn't a decision I made right from the start when I was creating .NET Nuke. It was more a decision that, that happened, sort of evolved over time. Cool. We have a question right behind you oh, from uh, Jeff Palermo, of all people. Jeff Palermo. How are you, Jeff? Uh, how are you, um, Question for the panel. Uh, from my perspective, there's a lot of confusion around the open source licenses. So I was hoping that uh, you could uh, just spell out the difference between uh, GPL version 1, version 2, and GPL version 3. And the other. Sure, and, and the other open source licenses. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> that sounds How much like time do we have? <laughs> <any? Yeah. laughs> Who's GPL fluid? Rob? Definitely not. No? Do we have any lawyers? Yeah. yeah. I mean, from, from a high level, the, uh, there is really two predominant open source licenses, right? There's the GPL and then there's the BSD license, um, which is BSD, BSD2, MIT. Those are the three derivatives of the BSD license. Um, the GPL license has some specific clauses in it, which people call viral clauses, which mean that derivative works of a GPL product must also be GPL licensed. And this, the intent of this is to keep open source in the public domain. So keep an open source project open source forever. Regardless of, you know, how many forks there are of it, it still must remain in the public domain. So that, that's a great benefit of the GPL, but the not so great benefit of it is that it makes it really difficult for commercial organizations to use GPL products because if they create derivative works, they really can't commercialize those derivative works because they have to give away the source code for them. Um, on the other side, the BSD license is more of an attribution license where really you just have to give credit back to the original copyright holders of the work. So in that case, it's very open and free and commercial um, companies and non-commercial organizations can use G or BSD license products without any issues. I, I can't really comment on GPL 1, 2, 3. I know that GPL 3 just got approved recently. Um, I mean, and there are a whole lot of other licenses out there that are open source licenses, like the Apache license, 
The uh, Mozilla public licenses are two fairly popular licenses as well. And then Microsoft has its own, its own licenses as well. So the shared source licenses for Microsoft, I think, have been submitted now to the, the open source initiative for yeah. approval. I think they actually so, have been approved. So originally we had three uh, shared source licenses. One was a, the Microsoft Permissive License, which was similar as in the BSD style. Uh, there was the Microsoft Community License, which had the what you refer to as the, the viral, you need to share your sources. And then there was the Reference License. Now, um, the Microsoft Permissive License has been changed to the Microsoft Public License, and that is OSI approved. The Microsoft Community License is now the Microsoft Reciprocal License, and that is OSI approved. And the, uh, the reference license, which is, hey, you can just look at it. It's for debug, for, for debugging purposes. So the, the .NET the framework recently being yeah. opened is That's a, that is a uh, reference license. So right. that, but that one is still, uh, that one is separate from the two that were OSI approved. Now somebody met me in the elevator early this week and I didn't recognize them by face, so I apologize for not calling you out. Maybe you don't want to after you hear the question. But he said to me, uh, don't let them hide behind the GPL. Do you have any idea what he meant by that? Is no. the guy here? Oh, all right. Here comes, <laughs> here comes, here comes uh, Allende. I have some ideas why. Yeah, I can think of a couple of reasons, but I'd love to hear what Oren has to say. So basically, every time, each and every time that I talk with anyone from Microsoft, about Microsoft, about anything related to open source projects, the GPL come up as the reason, the sole reason, the fear of the GPL, why not to do that? Anything I see, so they're anti-GPL. Yeah. yeah. So, I, personally, I don't like it, I don't use it for my projects. But it is, it is a valid choice for a lot of projects. Stuff like, uh, stuff that usually the end user stuff can and maybe should be a GPL. Sharp develop, sharp, sharp develop was a GPL product for a long time. It became LGPL, I think, some time ago. But the main idea is that the feel of the GPL has become so great that Microsoft, uh, it's not really to do anything with open source, if not even if, not even, uh, say we won't do that, you can get that from this open source project, or this set of open source projects. The, the restriction on the GPL, which I think that they're most afraid of, or whatever, is that they have to share their source back and add their source back to the project if they make modifications. Is that true? That's true, but there are also ways around that. The simplest way around that, you found that you have a GPL code in your code base, then you remove that. And then the... Uh, I, I'm sorry, can you say that again? You do what? You remove that. You remove the GPL code from the code base. You write the code, you, uh, you rewrite the functionality, it. you do something to remove the GPL code from there. You don't have to... Uh, the idea that the minute that you think you look at GPL code, then you write code that contain an if loop, an, an if uh, statement, sorry. Uh, it was, it's yeah. an interesting concept, we need to write that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you write an if statement, and the GPL code has an if statement. So now everything that you touch from now on will be GPL. That's the third approach to looking at the office of the uh, code. Just to be clear, because I'm sure I've taken flack on this before, mm. it is possible to create a commercial product that has GPL code in it, 
It's all in how you reference it that matters. So there, I mean, there are rules. It's just a challenge. Uh, and, and to your point, Oren, I think the fear that developers or the management has, let me yeah, be right about that, giving away is that I'm not going to figure out I had a chunk of GPL code in my product until after I shipped it. And then I'm really in trouble. Good luck. Yeah, that's what patches are for. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely, you know, there's folks that talk about ways to work with GPL in their commercial product. Do you guys have a one of, one of the big vendors that's actually kind of, they've shifted gears pretty heavily is the MySQL company. Right. Whatever they, ha- I don't, I don't know. They're a company actually, um, and they've kind of gone. Uh, I would say almost back backwards. There's still a community version of, of MySQL, but they have a very commercialized end of it now too. So I think they've found some demarcation line where this is the core open source end of things, and this is our proprietary stuff that you have to set, you have to pay for. Um, so they're they're doing product revenue model as well, but the way that they sell their product is you're buying service generally. You're right. not really paying for the core code. You're paying for somebody on the phone or email or what kind of support you have with it. But it was actually kind of interesting because I, I was doing a lot of MySQL work for a while and then uh, recently went back to their site and it's like, well, where the hell are the free downloads that they had before? And they're buried. You have to actually go searching for MySQL slash community and look for the community versions of it. Right. And they have a pretty stringent license that says, you can use this for non-commercial things or internally, but if you package it and sell it with something else, then you have to, you owe us. So that, their model has shifted a little bit. SugarCM does that as well. It's a, it's a great way to make money through open sources. Who Stop does it? Service. SugarCRM? SugarCRM. Yeah. Okay. Another random open source product and they pay, you pay for support or the, the enterprise model where the standard is free and it's a really cr- crippled version. Actually, the, the GPL in general um, has proven to be a successful license to build a commercial enterprise around for the original copyright holder because the original source code is owned by the copyright holder. You can release a version of the product which is GPL open source, and that means that even any derivative projects must remain open source. But then you can have a commercial project side by side and sell that under a commercial license, and you don't have to worry about any competition from your from somebody taking your open source product and forking it and calling it by another name and selling it and competing with you directly. So that's one benefit of the GPL. Is but that like I said, only for the original copyright right. holder. Right. That interesting angle on GPL. It is interesting. Yeah. It's good to start one, but not necessarily to <laughs> modify. Yeah. You have to be, be, be actually dependent on it. So... Can we jump to CodePlex? Yeah. Sorry, Sarah, I don't need to put you on the spot because I just... I think the whole Copex concept is interesting. I'm curious as to how Microsoft got there. So just for uh, make sure everyone knows, Copex is Microsoft's open source project hosting site. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, so uh, Copex came online May 5th, 2006, and it's built on top of Team Foundation server. And it's uh, we wanted to uh, have a place where developers could do open source on Windows platform. And the cool thing, the really cool thing about Coplex, and as I said before, I'm just joined the team a month ago, and so I'm doing all this onboarding, ramping up, because my experience before was specific to just Microsoft, Visual Studio, and Coplex. And I'm finding out more and more aspects of Coplex literally every day. And what I realized just yesterday was that we actually provide the widest range of the widest array of clients uh, to connect to Coplex because we support the TFS client or the Team Foundation Server client along with uh, 
uh, those, uh, SVN Bridge and Team Prize. So we have a, a wide array. So this is the ability to use Studio and or any tool you want, whether you're. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> so the joke is because I spent six years on uh, Visual Studio is that well you know now on Coplex I got to understand every all everyone in my audience everyone who's my uh, customer is well Sarah guess what you get to play with Eclipse and <laughs> test out the experience so I can't wait for that blog entry. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Eclipse to a to a Coplex project that's going to be a challenge. How many uh, projects are up there? We currently have around uh, 2,000, slightly over 2,000 projects. Wow. And wow. about only like about 200 in Microsoft. Actually, 11 I, have, I have a question about that. So the, the precursor to CodePlex was got.net. And we actually tried to use got.net uh, in .NET Nuke in the early stages, and there was just not a lot of resources, I think, behind got.net. So it was kind of difficult at the time. But did those projects that were on God.net get migrated to CodePlex when the new version came out? Or, like, whatever happened to God.net? Where are they now? <laughs> VH1 special. So, the God.net phase-out began in January of this year, and the way that they had it uh, scheduled for migration was the workspaces were direct... Uh, you could directly go straight to, to Coplex because they got the net workspaces were a place to do collaborative development online. So that, uh, they originally contacted people back in January, and so they had about six months to do that migration. So it was on a uh, opt-in, hey, I want to migrate, because they were, you know, uh, make sure that that person wanted to migrate their project. You, you just know, don't hey, want to we're take not somebody's code exactly. and ship it. Not, that's not right. Yeah, it's not, yeah, yeah. And then uh, there was a, uh, as a, another part of the of the phase out uh, as it's going on was yeah contact the users and you know, let them know and give a few warnings uh, hey what, this is what's going on so that that was the plan. But I got to think that there's a certain number of projects where there's nobody working on them anymore. There's yep. nobody to contact. That email doesn't live anymore, and and you you can't in good conscience move a project if it's just not right. So. They, they're going to be orphaned. They're gone. I would, I would imagine that there's quite a lot of orphaned open source projects where people just wanted to take stuff they had done and share it and then sort of forget about and it. And weren't going to think about it again. Well, go wander on SourceForge for a while. Yeah. Try and find a live project. Yeah, well, yeah. That's yeah. the hard part. And, and speaking of that, yes. why didn't you just use SourceForge? Why do we need another site? So it goes back to that the wide array right. of, of developers and to uh, to have open source on the Windows platform, and to use Team Foundation Server. So you need a certain amount of control. Uh, not so much control, but we wanted to, for people who are already using Microsoft technology, hey, you can do open source on right. Windows platform. It also, you know, strategically, it was a good decision, too, and timely, I think, for Microsoft to to embrace open source. Yeah, if you, if you think about open source as a, uh, a development model, it really makes sense. It provides people with more opportunities to do more collaboration because today what's happening is we're becoming a heterogeneous world where you have Microsoft and you have open source, but we want it to be on Windows. 200 Microsoft projects on Coplex. I think I could name like two. Well, yeah. There's actually, it's, it's a pretty good environment for digging out stuff. I got a friend, Chris Williams, and he's got one called Ha! Heroic Adventure. It's basically this 
way back to your VBS days, oh, game yeah. character mode, and and I'm a contributor on that. And he's got five dudes, and we write this silly little game that's like character mode on con- you know console game, right. believe it or not. And then you go to the ASP.NET Toolkit, which is actually one of the best projects that they have out there, where they've got 20, 30 controls, and you want to know how to do something. It's like, well, here's the code. Yeah. Spelunk into it, figure out how to do it, and you're golden. Um, so it's a great, I mean, and then you have, you know, I don't even know how many contributors are on that project. The last time I looked, the list was pretty heavy. It had a pretty good quantity of contributors to it. So those are two, you know, one little bitty one, you know, just a couple dudes writing a goofy console game all the way to, you know, the big home of Microsoft, but other people contributing to it as well. You know, we have features. If we want to add them, we can, you know, have them add us to the project. I think and, it's a good deal. And that's the coolest part about it that I got the most, uh, personal satisfaction for it was not only were we developing these uh, our power toys in this for my previous life a month ago uh, as open source hey here's the source code go do go do what you want but people wanted to contribute back or wanted to contribute something that they thought hey you know what if I'm using this and this annoys me this one little piece so here I, I just did a tweak on my own here you go I'm going to share it with everyone else if they wanted to they could and that was the coolest part Right. Are there legal benefits to being open source? Maybe, Sean, you might have thought about this. I mean, are, do you have more liability exposure when you're a commercial product, when you have a commercial product, than when you're an open source product? It comes down to your license. Because, I mean, the, the BSD license that .NET Nuke is offered under basically offers no guarantees or warranties of any kind. Um, so, so pretty much all software is you, you use it at your own risk. Right. But, I mean, you've heard... That we all know that there are lawsuits in this business over software screwing up uh, contractor. You know, contractors and and consultants have to have liability insurance to protect themselves. Well, I mean, again, back to the GPL license, right? I guess it's the license. If you're a GPL licensed product and if you become quite popular, you have to worry about, I guess, people perhaps forking the project and calling it by a different name. Yeah, I don't. I mean, there's legal issues. What are your thoughts about that, Richard? Because you sort of dabble in, yeah, you know, software patent law and things. The, yeah, we've definitely been doing a lot of that with Strange Loop lately. But you get into this crazy battle about software. You know, it, well, on one hand, we're incredibly dependent on it. On the other hand, we refuse to take responsibility for it in any way. Right. But the uh, the and often you limit liability based on the value of software. Oh, you know, that hundred dollar piece of software you bought for me. Crashed your airplane. Right. Uh, you're on a million bucks. Here's your hundred dollars back. <laughs> <laughs> Knock yourself out. Uh, and it's funny how I swear that the real legacy of Microsoft long term is the EULA. You know? Yeah. Bill was one of the first guys in the world to say, I'm going to sell the software. It used to be software came with the machine. Yeah. Right? You bought the machine, get the software. And then the whole idea is sell software on its own. This is where all of this came from. Licensing agreement. You know, Sean just said it so casually. Well, it's all up to your licensing agreement. At the same time, none of us could articulate GPL one, two, three. Right. You know, we don't want to read that stuff. You ever read one? Yeah. No. The only reason, I mean, the real reason I don't read it is upsets me when I do. (laughs) I'm do, I'm agreeing to what? (laughs) I'd never install a single piece of software if I actually read the thing and said, uh, I'm actually going to agree to this. (laughs) It's disturbing what's in an EULA. So you don't read them. You just scroll past, you know. Mo- what is a dialog box really about? What button do I have to press to make it go away and keep going? Well, now, now how about pressure? Because, well, first of all, Sean, .NET Nuke is, is really a, a very, very successful open source project. But um, 
you know, pressure comes from customers, it comes from uh, potential customers, it comes from existing customers, it comes from wannabe uh, developers. I mean, what, is there a difference in, in the sort of the, the pressure on the project as an open source project versus a commercial project? I mean, it's public, right. so you get public pressure, which isn't always a good thing because right. people who aren't qualified to offer their opinions often do quite loudly. I think that one of the things that, regardless of the size of the open source project, that the yeah. people who manage the open source project need to be aware of is that you need to know where all of the source code is coming from. So that's one thing that early on in the .NET New project, we enforced um, contributor license agreements. So anybody who has hmm. commit access to the repository has to have signed a legal agreement with .NET Corporation to say that they are responsible for that IP and they know where it came from so that we're protected. And well, that also protects the people who use the software. But there's a lot of open source projects out there that don't do that due diligence. They just accept anything. They don't know where it comes from. And that's what puts ultimately customers at risk. Now, you said due diligence. Due diligence to me would be actually reviewing the chunk of code. Oh, we do that too. And deciding on whether to incorporate it or not. You, you still need the legal piece of paper too. Yeah, I think the piece of paper is in theory the important part. I mean, what we're talking about here is a guy steals somebody else's piece of code and incorporates it in your project, and now your project is infected with a liability of some kind. So right. what the paper is really protecting you against is that's his fault because he did it. Yeah. Or they didn't even know that they did. Yeah, yeah. or they didn't know. I mean, it, it, you know, how many times have we run into an issue of plagiarism like that where they just, they never actually searched on their source of that information either, so they don't know uh, the trouble they've caused themselves. Well, that's well, that the issue that IBM project. and SCO have been battling for, for that, years now. That is the basic definition of that battle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, no, but nobody actually paid attention to who wrote what and where it came from. No good records. Yeah. To me, you know, I had to wonder how much... Going open source really says, you know, I really need to politicize my project. I need to get tied up in complicated licensing. I need to to battle with everybody who wanted to be on my core team and who has commit rights. Like, it's just a huge challenge to deal with all of these, you know, what are you saying when you say open source? I need more grief in my life? The other side of the licensing issue, too, is um, if, like for Sean, for example, I don't know how much wealth he has. But if I stole .NET Nuke and put Rob.NET Nuke on there, could he sue me? You know, does he have enough finances to actually come after me and stuff like that? In Canada, he does. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that's what you got to look at. It's, it's unethical, yes, but do people really have the money or these projects and unit and all these other ones actually have the money to come after you and see you? And that's a, a, a disadvantage, I think, to open sources. You have a lot of contributors and some owners, but really, a lot, you know, the projects I'm on, they're, they're so small. If someone steals it, who cares, you know? I'll send them a nasty email, but that's about it. I'm not going to sue because I chose this license over that. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerix Q2 2000 Tools Update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET. WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. 
It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. Yeah, I think Ayende has a comment brewing. Uh, it's, it's coming. Here it comes. <laughs> Talk, everybody. It's basically my field. So few things. First, open source, by definition, give me the right to uh, take your code and do whatever I want with that. That is the official definition of open source. So I literally can't steal uh, the .NET new code. I have permission to use that. And I'm saying that uh, the Castle Project has recently encountered a case where a commercial company has taken a part of the Castle uh, code base and renamed the namespace and put it out as a product. And it's not considered nice. It's not considered, you could say it's not ethical, but uh, it's fine. And it's legal. It's, I gave my permission to do that when I committed my code to a project that, that did that. There is no sense in saying that you stole something or you do, that you can't steal something. I don't like that. I think it's wrong. But I gave you permission to do that, so I can't complain about anything like that. Yeah. In addition to that, the process of setting up a open source project, it's not you mentioned that you need to pick a license, pick a way to handle that. I'm a member of seven, eight, something like that, open source projects. And usually the process of setting up a new a open source project is just something in a... Software asking for a, a project there, and that's about it. You need to pick up the uh, pick up the license, and usually you want to think about that. I I usually uh, use either the B, uh, the BSD or the Apache license, and beyond that, you're home free. The uh, decision that you want to make after that is: Do I trust someone else to also mess with my code? And you can make this decision on a case by case basis. And if you have several people on the team, then you may want to uh, install some policies. But the initial cost of just starting open source project is just finding some public repository and putting up the code. That's nothing more. Thanks, Oren. I mean, I guess the key point's got to come in. As soon as somebody else is contributing code, things are getting a little more complicated. That. Hey, Charles. Glad you came up. Yes, so I'm Charles Nurse. I'm with .NET New Corporation. I just want to make a comment, though, about the, the, the last comment. And while it's true that the actual source code, and he, um, it, he can do, anybody can do whatever they want with it, what is not true is the fact that you can then take that code and sell it as .NET New, for instance, if, if I'm talking about the .NET New platform. The company owns the rights to the name. They may not own and be able to stop you using the code, but they do own the rights to the name. So you can take any open source project 
whatever it might be, and try and package it without doing anything, try and package it, and then distribute it as that same product with the same name, and then try and sell it. So they so could call so it .NET Nuki? You sure. can, well, there are certain, it depends how the, the various <laughs> projects trademark their names, right. do that sort of thing, but yes. So, in, so, so you can still own the right to the name of your project. You may have given away the right to the actual code itself. Thanks, Charles. And I think one of the, or made that point of, there's a key step here, renaming, right? Changing the namespace, changing the name. Uh, oddly enough, we have pretty good name protection in the world. We don't have very good software or code protection. We're given up on code protection of, uh, of that kind when we go open source. Now, you mentioned um, that CodePlex is built on Team Foundation Server. So, you know, we sort of just breezed over that, but the importance of using a sort of nice check-in, check-out source control model with open source, I would think, would be critical. Because if you just have a website where you're putting up here, go ahead and make a modification to this code, you know, you could end up with the multi-version hell document syndrome. So um, are there other... Um, in the non-Microsoft open source world, are there other, uh, you know, is, is, is version control built, built into the... Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Like version control, basically having a source code repository is one of the fundamentals of managing a, a, t a distributed project. So yeah. things like SourceForge.net are one of the most popular. Google Code obviously has been around for a while now too. Right. And it's pretty popular for the non-Microsoft projects. And even there's some Microsoft projects that are on Google Code. Um, originally, I thought that that CodePlex was kind of re a retaliatory reaction to Google Code, and, and I thought it was a way for Microsoft perhaps upsell developers into TFS. But I kind of don't really think that anymore because the vast majority of developers that are on CodePlex will never afford TFS. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> good point. Well, and and they, SVN bridging. I mean, there's other ways to get to CodePlex. Yeah, Team Prize. Yeah. Team Prize. Yeah, love Team Prize. Well, also, one of the things you commented about is about checking in and checking out code. I think the, the concept of pessimistic version control is going away. Huh. So that's why they have gatekeepers like Sean and the crew that I think they probably review everything that goes into the core. So it's either merged when people check in or they handle the merging of the code effectively. I'm not sure what the process is, but the concept of one dude in India someplace checking out a file and owning it for a year doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, or whatever country or whatever basement they happen to be in, they don't own the file. Yeah, there's right? no way to do pessimistic locking in a scenario like this. I mean, there's lots no. of folks... That, I know some folks who love pessimistic lock. Don't consider, consider SVN a real source code control because it's not pessimistic. But you couldn't do it in a true open source environment. It's, it's madness. It's got to be an optimistic strategy. James, I just wanted James Kovacs standing beside me right here. I cannot understand how you sat still for 30 minutes. I'm blown away. <laughs> I just, I'm glad you're here, Brad. What do you got to say? Well, I'm jumping up to just with the check-in, check-out type of mechanism. You've already alluded to it. It really would be a death knell to an open source project. You cannot scale that type of version control semantic to a large project. One of the key contributors to open source is the ability for anybody to pull down the source, they don't have commit rights, create a patch, send it to the owner, and have it deployed into the project. I did this with Oren. I did not, I'd never taken a look at Rhino Mocks before. I grabbed the latest, I, thick, I put in a patch for a new feature, had it to him within 45 minutes, and the next day it was included in a release. 
Like you just can't do that in a traditional environment. Whereas with open source, it's definitely possible. Well, the whole idea of negotiating the right to get to the source in the first place is just moot. You wouldn't want to be doing that to try and make the changes. No, it's completely moot because you can form a patch. You can right-click on the directory and say, create patch. It creates a diff file that I can then send to the owner. They can review it and decide whether they want it or not. I don't want commit, I don't need commit rights. If I create enough patches, then the owner might decide, yes, I'll give you commit access to the repository. And that's how open source is managed. It's just so you can stop bothering Oren, right? He's like, if I give you commit rights, will you stop bugging me? <laughs> yeah, if he's persistent enough, he ends up with commit rights. Another point with open source projects is I think they run most effectively when you've got a benevolent dictator overseeing the project. One who does take ownership of the project or a very small core group. You might have a lot of committers, but you have a core group that's reviewing, having a common vision, driving it forward, just like any other product team. Yeah, you have to have, it's all about people. It's, someone's got to drive it. Someone's got to be there. You can't just have, oh, uh, just throw it over the wall and hope that they all figure out um, what to do from there. Someone's got to review it. Someone's got to I'm just trying to imagine Sean Walker as a benevolent dictator. I'm trying to get that, uh, that idea around my head. I mean, they call Linus, Linus Torvalds that all the time, right? But is that true, Sean? Is he a benevolent dictator? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, or do you go by, like, the code God status? <laughs> no. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess right from the beginning of time since we've had a core team, I have kind of overseen the development efforts. So, yeah, I guess I am that person. To, to get titled with that particular moniker, though, I don't know about that. <laughs> Benevolent dictator. But I suddenly get this vision that you spend an awful lot of your time looking at merges. Well, I also have trusted individuals. So, so you told it up to other people. <laughs> right. So it's all about trust. Actually, that is one of the, the basic yeah. tenets in open source is basically, you, yeah, you have somebody at the helm, but then they usually have lieutenants who they trust explicitly to make the right decisions about where the project's going. So, is that the definition of a core team? Yes. So uh, to James's point, um, the traditional check-in, check-out methods of source control don't really work. So how does Team Foundation Services then work on CodePlex? How, you know, how does that work with Team System? So uh, both scenarios, whether uh, we, we support both scenarios. One is you're a member of the core team, you have access to the source code repository. And the second was the one that, that was just described uh, um, briefly before, which is the I have only read-only access and I want to submit a patch. So um, with... Uh, Team Foundation Server being in the back end, uh, as I said before, the, there were the various clients from Team Prize to Team Foundation Server's client itself, um, SVN client. So the, if I'm a member of the core team, this is that's the way I can tradi traditionally check in and out. Um, if you go to Coplex itself, Coplex, the website, is a read-only client to, for the source control. So the core team still needs that classic source control kind oh, yeah, of thing, yeah, of absolutely. course. Absolutely. But if I'm like, you're if I'm coming by and I want to, I just want, I don't want to, uh, have to have an enlistment or be sure. able to pull down the, uh, the source code. I just want to just read only access. I can use the website and pull it down and bam. Revisit from the Anhyronate <laughs> Mafia here. <laughs> That's right. So a question for Sarah. Uh, right now there is the SVN client, uh, so that you can, it, as I understand it, it runs on your local box in your system tray. You use Tortoise to then connect to it and then it, Creates connection to CodePlex. Is there are there any plans to host that so that I don't have to install anything? I can just connect up to CodePlex using Tortoise directly, so I don't have any additional client install. How can you reduce the friction? 
Not that I'm aware of. I'm still getting ramped up on how all this is working, so I haven't heard of any plans in the future. Uh, but you talked about friction. Can we meet offline after this, and you can fill me in on where the pain points are, just so that I can get for my own. One of the things uh, that makes an education. open source sorry, to interrupt. Yeah. So one of the things that makes an open source project successful is to make it as easy as possible for people to contribute. Oh, yeah. One of the points of friction is going to be yet another piece of software I have to download just to connect to your site. I've already yes. got Tortoise installed to connect up to SourceForge, to Google Code, to a variety of other repositories. If you want contributors, you have to make it as easy as for me and others to connect in. Oh, so uh, yeah, how can absolutely. we make that happen? Absolutely. It's all about usability. So uh, can we can we talk offline? Okay. And then you we'll can walk me, through, yeah, walk me through everything so I can... Uh, uh, just get you, get it, get caught up and educated myself. Sure, Thanks. I'd love to. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Does anyone know the failure rate of open source projects? We hear a lot about the failure rate of commercial projects. We all know what it is, right? It's more than half. It's more, way more than half, isn't yeah. it? Well, I think it's slightly different failure rate, though, right? When you're looking at traditional projects that you're you know, delivering for clients. Failure is non-delivery or software that's dysfunctional when it's delivered. Yeah. Whereas in open source, there has to be a product to begin with to release, like it has to be released as, at least in some form. And then yeah. from there, how do you judge failure? I mean, was it because the project didn't get a mass of community? Right. Yeah. Or? I guess, I guess failure in a commercial software is nobody buys it, but right. that's not an issue for. Well, and so failure in an open source project is nobody works on it. Nobody right. works nobody on it. Nobody uses right. it, but is that truly a failure? It yeah. depends what the goal of the original project Right. Was. Yeah. It's, you gotta ask the flip question was, what was your uh, goals and motivations going into the project right. for open sourcing it? But it's, like I said, I, I get that sense when I wander around SourceForge just littered with these abandoned projects. So, you know, the first thing you do when you go and look at any of those things is, what's the last date of the contribution? Oh, it's 2002. Okay. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you get a clear picture of where, where things are going. But that's it, not a clear indication of whether the original idea was bad either. Right. I mean, that's the product is so good it hasn't had to be worked on in five years. Right. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Just like commercial projects, though, open source projects do require a significant amount of marketing effort to promote itself to... Because, I mean... Just because you build it doesn't mean that people are going to come to it. Right. You have to get the word out about it. And that's uh, interesting, of course. That's obviously true in commercial software, but I don't know that it's intuitively true of open source software, too, that you still have to market it. You still have to actually sell it. And we have another question from the audience. That, uh, I guess that's one of the things that when I go to SourceForge, I'm looking for something to solve a small problem or something. I might find something on SourceForge and say, it's like, this is a great match, but then I go to it and I see the project has been just dead and abandoned and lying there. So I guess for with CodePlex, what I'm wondering is, is there going to be some type of, not so much enforcement, but saying, let's start pushing these things that aren't active out in, in, in a way so they're not coming up, so they're not, you know, just kind of maybe putting them in an archive state, so they're just kind of disappearing. Archiving. Inactive projects aren't bad, though. There's still a lot of value in, in having source code that you found that you want to use, right? So why, why would you want to remove it? Just because it's inactive, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any value. Not, not when I find it that it, it, it solves what I need, but when I, it, it started, it's a project that was started and just kind of never finished and languished, and it isn't really serving anything other than maybe as a, a vague reference to some code. 
And you really don't know until you download it and like check it out. Or, or you or have you dig the into it. Yeah. to take it. Right? You have the option to download it, add some value to it, and if the original owner doesn't want to to package it up and redistribute it, you could take it yeah. and redistribute it yourself. Yep. I mean, that's one of the benefits of open source, right? Right, but I guess what I'm looking at is is those things that really aren't useful that, that are just clutter that are, are preventing me. From like he's not looking to uh, he's not looking to work on it. He wants right. to use it. I'm I, at, it. I think it might solve my problem. Uh, it's not that I can work. On it. I have much less of a problem with dead open source projects that are just sitting there as assets than I do with social networks with profiles of people that long since left that social networking community that are never cleaned up. Like, give me a break. MySpace has 80 million active <laughs> profiles. Not likely. <laughs> Well, I guess the, the OCD in me wants to clean that up. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the long tail because for those 10 people that, 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 that download that, that one source code um, piece, that, that could have been mission critical for them. And therefore, it was worth it to them if it gets them successful. Now, um, I'm, I'm wondering if it's... Are these dead projects, are they blocking your ability to discover what's, what's useful or the mo more active? Now, if, if it's a problem yes. of, yeah, so if it's a problem of discoverability and usability, then yeah, then there, what we do for Coplex is look at activity. Like, uh, uh, hits on the page, uh, downloads, uh, we base everything on activity, and if you go to our homepage, we actually show based on each week what's going on. So I, I'm constantly having to check the site, okay, what's popular this week? What's going on this week? And I guess from Steve's point of view, he would rather have an active project first than an inactive. But if there is nothing else, if it's only inactives that are available, then fine, I'll look at those. But give me the most active one off the bat. I think that exactly. almost uh, the, the core premise of the open source deal is that the source is there. I know a month and a half ago I was looking at, I wanted an open source FTP server. Okay? And I wanted it in .NET. I didn't want it in Java. And I found some half-baked FTP server thing that did what I wanted, and I hacked it up real hard. And it was five years old that somebody did this on a weekend type of deal, but it had the core in there. So it was really old, but it was really useful for what it provided. So there, just because it's old and nobody's done anything with it doesn't mean it's not useful. It gave you the starting point you wanted. Oh, yeah. It was exactly the seed that I needed to, to plant the tree, you know, to, to grow the tree of what I was trying to do. And without that code, you know, it's like I'd like to know how that Microsoft FTP server does it with their C++ code, but, you know, good luck in figuring that out. Without that code, you'd have weeds. <laughs> <laughs> and the cool thing about the, the, the uh, discoverability based on activity is what Sean was saying earlier, is that maybe the code is abandoned, but someone, someone else picked it up and took it and ran with it. Then hopefully you would find that newer version before you find the abandoned one. You know, the thing that really, one of the things, though, that I want to go back on and one of the things that's actually kind of a travesty is when a complete repository disappears off the planet. So, and I'm not going to criticize you because I know you're new in the CodePlex team, but God.net disappearing and not having all the code that was there straight out sucks. That's a bad plan. Okay? <laughs> Nobody... <laughs> you know, the thing that really pisses me off, actually, and I know this is on radio, so blurb that out, whatever you want Redacted and that's... That's all right. We're all growing up. The deal is that nobody sent Google the memo. Okay? So I go searching for, I think there's like the Visual Studio. There's like these widgets you can run. 
I find all these cool references to this registry cleaner thing for Visual Studio, and they all point, like 43 references point to the dead zone of God.net. Sarah's turning red. It's not your fault, Sarah. No, it's, not. it's not your fault. It's straight out. I know you it's not your it. fault. You didn't do it. We know you didn't do it. But the deal is, like, stick that thing in read-only mode or give it a node off of CodePlex where all these old dead projects that people still want went. You know? It was, I'm, it was, I'm it was, let Sarah off the hook. Decision, it was about. So. You gotta know this argument took place inside of Microsoft. Big yeah, I'm going to make her laugh some more, but she, cause she's not going to say anything, and I'm okay with that. There was a big battle inside of Microsoft. Things were thrown to get to where they are right now, right? It was not, the collective did not act, right? It was a, probably a very tough decision, and we don't know all the details, and we're not going to know. It doesn't mean it doesn't stop. But, yeah, okay. Well, it's like, where's the Goliath hard drive, man? Give it to somebody that can stick it in their basement and hook up Dude, to did you not listen to the story? <laughs> there are bits of it attached to buses all over Vancouver. All right. All right, I'll say it. As a part of coming over to the Coplex team, I inherited Gatanet. And, oh. yes, I, everything you have said, loud and clear. <laughs> loud and clear. Got so, it. No, but no, 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 this seriously. No, no, seriously. Ser for an open source talk with the top ten. It's like, well, the no, but, but, no, but thank you. Thank you for sharing. No, I, I really do appreciate hearing, are we still hearing the feedback. After <laughs> yes, and we are. We are. Sorry. Did she say and thanks just, for your input? Did she yes, say I, that? Yeah, and I meant to tell the other person, too, uh, about um, who's going to educate me afterwards on non-Microsoft technology. The, the, thank you for where, where did you go? I can't. James. James. Yes. James. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for my, what will be my, my 101 in this area. So, like I said before, I'm like, I want to get to use like, Eclipse. <laughs> so, so thanks, too. Okay, Steve, another question? Yeah, one question. Separate uh, topic. Earlier was talked about in, in getting code and having, for .NET, having contributors sign the agreement that says, I know where this comes from and stuff, and how you do that review of code. How do you go about looking at a piece of code and determining that it came from someplace that, no, that you know, that from a is commercial real. product or something. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you find that? How do you track that down? That is really difficult. And there are like uh, source code engines out there now, yeah, like black, coders and. Black, but I mean, even then, coders.net or whatever it is, and there's uh, this one, something, Olo. Something with a dot. Black duck. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's black. Something with a dot? Uh, duck. A duck. Search.net. Okay. Yeah, there's a, so there's a few source code um, search engines out there, so you can search in those. But yeah, you're right. It is difficult. It is a and that's why Remote you Soft legal has one. Paper. That's it. <laughs> Remote Soft has one. Remember we talked to uh, Hang Lo about that. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it is a huge problem, that whole yeah. ability to identify code in its entirety or in, in, in a significant part, partial matching of code. It's a very interesting set of... Makes sense that makes sense that a guy like Huhang would be working on it. The guy is just so yeah. far out there intellectually about right. technology that you'd have to be the guy. Jeff, you're back. I'm glad you're here. Come over closer. I'm running out of cable. I just wanted to, to touch on that question. Why do so many open source projects fail? Because oh, that wasn't the question. It was what's the failure rate? Oh, what's the failure rate? Because I yeah. I don't think that's the I don't think that's a valid question. And let me touch on the FTP server. Even if the original creator of that FTP server project said man, nobody used it, this is crap, and he abandoned it. You came by, he's given it to the community. You come by and say, oh, that's great. Well, guess what? It succeeded for you. So unlike a business where success always means money, in the open source um, community, you put it out there, you're, you're giving it away. Now the definition for is it a success or a failure? 
doesn't come from one source. It's now, you know, a hundred different opinions and, um, you know, you use it and, hey, now it's a success. Thanks, Jeff. Part of my job is coming up with dumb questions, so I hope you, <laughs> hope you appreciate I'm doing my job. But to that point, what is, as long as the search tools are adequate, there's no downside to leaving a project up forever. It's only disk space and disk space is cheap. Hmm. Isn't that true? I mean, what else is there? Backup? Well, I think that part of the answer there is that maintaining infrastructure still has a cost component to it over time. Right. So that might be part of the reason why got.net. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, there is some management of assets that occurs over time, right? It's not just a matter of throwing it on a hard drive somewhere. Right. So. Oh, we have another question. Hi. A couple of things. Sarah, first of all, I've, I've used Eclipse for five years, so if you want some help with that, I can certainly help you on that topic. Awesome. Give me, give me your card afterwards. I will. Um, I'll hold you to that. I, I wanted to speak also to these dead, dead projects, if you like. I mean, my, my background is, is primarily five years worth of Java, and having done a whole bunch of Java projects, have a new customer this year who says, got to do everything.net. And I found that those dead projects, if you like, are tremendous for learning. I mean, never mind using, right? If I need to go figure out how to do something in .NET and I have no idea where it is, the best way for me to do that is CodePlex. I use CodePlex tons. I use .NET. .NET before it went away was where I started. I mean, this stuff is great for learning. Never mind using. It's just good for learning, right? You'll see bad things in there too, of course, but you learn what's going on. And I think that's a big, big part of what these things are for and Absolutely. why they should go away. Yeah, sample code. Yeah. If nothing else, sample Absolutely. code. Yeah. Or sample Thank code you. of what not to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes the example is don't do it this way. Right. I, I want to call out the line that open source people use that frustrates me, which is the that whole defensive move of don't like it? Write it yourself. Right? Don't oh. contribute to the project. Don't complain to me. Write your own code. Send it out. Oh, here comes Iende. <laughs> here comes Iende. <laughs> Walking fast. Oh, I thought he was going to hit me this time. <laughs> That's a pain point because there are a lot of people that think that I put stuff in the open source and I do it usually on my own, on my own time because I like that. And then, hey, if you don't do that, I'm not using your code. I'm not using your code. And I got threats and I got a abusive treatment, let us say, let us put it this way, for people that think that I owe them something because I put stuff, because I put stuff out there. And the line, if you don't like it, do it yourself, is a line that says, I don't have the time, I respect your ability to do that, or in other words, it's not my problem. The code is there, the ability is there, you want to, you want this to happen, you can do it yourself, you can pay someone to do it, you can pay me to do it, if I would like to do that, but not every request, not every feature is important or available either to me or to the vision that I have for this product or this set of products. Ayende, I feel your pain because I wrote a couple of books on internet programming which came with sample code. And I made the mistake of, well, not compiling them as DLLs because of the whole com thing, you really have to sort of register them and people didn't get it. So I would get, yeah, abusive emails from people who said, your product doesn't work. And then I said, well, that's funny, my product is a book. <laughs> and the fact that you... And I think it is readable. <laughs> so you're wrong. But yeah, I, I, I understand that. 
It is aggra- You know, we have annoying people in commercial software too. So. Yeah, but they are called customers. They pay you. Well, that doesn't give them the right to be abusive, does it? No, but someone out of the blue, hi, I really would like you to do feature that takes three months. Right. Okay. Oh, by the way, you should convert to Islam. Yeah. That's a real story, by the way. Mm-hmm. So. The, I'm not going to use your software because you're a heathen. Uh, yeah, something <laughs> like that. So, yeah. That's about it, and that's a real painful. And most open source developers run into this at one point or another. Or at one point they got, I think, 15 to 50 emails a day asking me for help right. about stuff. If you don't add this feature, I'm not going to download it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And your answer is, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's just fine with me. Hi there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know that uh, the defensive don't like you write me a patch line is not uh, does not and should not replace uh, listening to your users for for uh, for modifications and requests. It doesn't come for issues uh, that uh, uh, in, in in another model would be um, implemented. It it replaces issues that in another or or business model would be closed as won't fix or by design. Okay, it, it's just the open source answer to I'm not going to do that, but you can, which is far better than I'm not going to do that, and that's it. Yeah. It doesn't replace the I am going to do that. That still happens. That's the 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 pillar of open source is listening to users and, and doing stuff. Well said. And if, not, and if not the core team, maybe somebody else. I mean, I, I really like the idea that you can... See a feature you want that you may feel you can't code, can post on that form. You know what would be great? And who knows why pick it up? Who knows what, who might pick it up? Let me ask the panel a question and maybe the first one to grab the microphone gets it. But, um, what, what needs to change? What needs to change? What could be better just in general about the open source experience? While they're leaping to the mic. I think a, uh, some sort of process to review alternatives. There's 20 projects on an FTP server, and they're all the exact same thing implemented in C Sharp, and the quality is significantly different. Like on Copeplex, is there a way to rate? I don't think so. There's discussions, but you can't really rate the quality of, of what you're reviewing. Or you know, you go to, to authors and stuff to do to do full reviews, but sometimes it falls short and stuff like that. So that's one thing when I'm looking for um, when you're consuming code and yeah. That's good feedback. Yeah. Sean, you must have an opinion. On improvements for the open source Just model. in the, yeah, the, the whole experience. And obviously clarifying the licensing. <laughs> this whole room doesn't have a single person that really can understand it. Let's um, fix the And it has a suggestion. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I, if you want to be on the panel, you should have said something to me. <laughs> Grab my chair. Um, how to improve open source, at least in the .NET world, by accepting that as a credible, as an acceptable alternative, or as the approach uh, for some things. If you are looking in the Java world, then the basic building blocks of many applications, the default architecture, is based on open source uh, project, or open source project, open source products. If you are looking in the dotted walls, and I'm talking as someone who comes to clients and I have this default architecture that works very well 
in scaleware, both in terms of performance, both in terms of the, the way that I can take a team and make a really good uh, solution to the problem that the customer has. And time after time, both in my uh, own uh, project and stuff that I consult or uh, see in the field, I see people resist that because it's open source, because there is this uh, prejudice that I now uh, use open source, I can't do, uh, I have no control over that. I have no one to shout at. I have, uh, it's not Microsoft, I can't use that. I had all of these responses uh, come to me personally from other people. I've heard horror stories about people not getting support because they weren't using, uh, because they were using open source projects. Okay, I'm talking about, uh, never mind the story right now. But, uh, <laughs> that goes both ways though. There's a lot of large companies that, if you send me a Word doc, you know, nobody can open it in my company. So send me, you know, some open source. Send me an RTF or exactly a PDF. There, there's large companies that will completely ban anything Microsoft. And that, that ignorance is, is everywhere. It's not just Microsoft people. I don't, I don't see that, basically. Yeah. I haven't ever seen a place that told me, I send them a Word document and they got back to me. If they would, I just send this PDF and go, mm -hmm. and I would forget about it. It's not painful. It's painful when I need to use, uh, when I either need to argue about using the best approach with someone whose criteria for selecting something is if it has Microsoft in the name or not. And again, I had customer that tell me we are using Microsoft or we are building our own. That's the rules. And that, like I say, that goes both ways. Yeah, I remember a time when it, yeah. you had to buy IBM. Right, yeah. worked that way too. There's other well, companies have been in this situation. That's just people's biases and ignorance. I think sure. and it definitely is on both sides of the fence. It's fear. Yeah. Um, what about open source projects or open source software that has a direct impact on commercial software? Um, we we've seen that uh, a few times. Yeah, Rod, uh, we've seen it in a big way, actually, and it was a really critical way. Um, sort of out of the blue came Firefox. And then Microsoft realized, oh my God, we probably should add like tabs to our browser <laughs> because we're sort of behind. And then they added all these other features that Firefox still lives and, you know, they released another version like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it's a good way to wake the sleeping giant that went and laid waste to everybody else. But the thing about Firefox and kind of to talk about the, the resistance to using open source software. I don't, Firefox actually is very well adopted and it's open source, but it also had the, the, the umbrella, I guess, of the old Netscape thing that set up the oh, Mozilla Foundation Mozilla, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and that might be something that, that would help get over some of that reluctance that you were talking about. So like there's all the, the, the NANT and the NUnit and all these things that are kind of these little projects out here. But then you have this company ThoughtWorks that's like, Wow, this, and to me, you know, I'm new to it, so it kind of came out of the blue, but they've got a, you know, it's a pretty good sized company behind some fairly big agile type of deals. And so what if they said, hey, we'll provide that umbrella over these other projects, you know? So hmm. I'm trying to remember what the, um, it's like uh, IBM supporting Linux. Right. That but was a fairly significant event in open source. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think there's some energy around it at Sean. .NET Nucorp. I mean, isn't this right. what you're talking about? 
Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Forming a company around the open source product to provide the additional services required to, to build a larger community and a larger, more robust product. Well, and I, I remember in some conversation we had where part of this is raising the confidence level of large enterprises that this product is backed. This product is sufficiently supported that you can bet real money on it. Right. And that's a bigger problem in the large enterprise deployments is that those folks, you know, when you're talking to the suits, they want to have service level agreements for whatever software comes in the door and gets installed in their data center. So a lot of small scale open source projects will not get considered under that very strict, you know, criteria. Uh, so, yeah, and and so, I wonder if we're going to eventually come up with these umbrella entities that may well be able, if you're going to go the extra mile, you can get your project under that umbrella so that it doesn't have to be a big project, it doesn't have to be a .NET new, but it's still got that back, it's still got that protection. Well, it is happening, and, and I think it will happen more. Right. Well, guys, I think we're coming down to the end of it. I, I see a lot of hungry folks out here ready for dinner, and uh, I just want to thank the panel one more time. Give them a big round of applause. This comes to my, my favorite part of the show, the part where I throw t-shirts. That's right, and that's what we're going to do now. But thanks for listening to Dot Net Rock! Dot Net Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com.